Turn, if you would, to the first chapter of the book of Mark. I think I have one correction from last week, because I've had three people ask me about it. The locusts are, in fact, clean from the Old Testament. In the dietary law, you were allowed to eat locusts. So John the Baptist was not breaking any Old Testament laws by the fact that he ate locusts and wild honey. But before we get to the lesson, since I've had five people ask me, I have to address a very important topic. Last week, I went to the doctor, just a routine checkup, and the first thing the doctor asked me was, are you related to Luther Scarborough, who was the coach at Poly? And that's all we talked about. I guess I had an exam, but I'm not sure. There is a movie out right now called 12 Mighty Orphans, and in the movie, my grandfather is the bad guy. It is not true, okay? The portrayal of my grandfather in the movie is a, not an um, accurate representation. My mother went and saw the movie and actually loved the movie. She said it's a very good, uplifting, you know, rah-rah movie. And she had no clue who this guy was that was supposedly my grandfather. So anyway, if you do see it, you can come tell me all about it. I've had five people in the church come ask me about this movie. And that is, in fact, my grandfather. And no, he's not the jerk that he was in the movie. He was very competitive. He was a football coach. He was very competitive. I'll give him that part of it, but anyway, they kind of took some liberties with some of the facts in the movie, like made them up, but anyway. Last week, we made our way through the middle part of the first chapter of the book of Mark. Uh, Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We have talked repeatedly, and we will continue to talk repeatedly, that what Mark is trying to do is to convince us that Jesus, the Christ, is the Son of God. And so last week we had Jesus being baptized by John, and... The heavens open up, and God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So we have Mark stating it in the first verse. We have Jesus stating it. We're going to have demons stating it. We're going to have Roman soldiers stating it, that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, as we see that throughout the book of Mark. And I was telling Tom, Tom, my son-in-law, this morning on the way here, that Mark just kind of keeps moving. Mark is a book of action. And I am going to continue to resist the urge to jump over to Matthew to explain all the action. We're just going to keep moving with the action. So, last week, we started verse 21. Well, we got close to ending there, actually. And they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. So we began a brief discussion about the idea of authority. By what authority 
Does Jesus proclaim the things that he proclaims? What gives him the right to do that? And we had a brief discussion about that, and we're going to continue that discussion today. And I reminded you that my authority to stand here and teach is solely based on the Word of God. And if I ever say anything that contradicts the Word of God, like locusts or unclean, you need to tell me that I've said something wrong. So, Jesus has authority, and the people listening to him recognize that. Remember, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the people were astounded because why? He spoke as one who had authority. Now, I know that in your life you have talked with people, and you sit there and go, this guy knows what he's talking about. And conversely, you've talked with people and you go, you know, this guy doesn't have a clue what he's talking about. He's rambling some words that just he read somewhere and he doesn't understand the implication. So we have this idea that some people do and some people don't know what they're talking about. Jesus speaks always as one who has authority. What is the source of that authority? The gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. The fact that Jesus is God gives him the authority to proclaim truth. Now, as a society today, we have difficulty with the whole idea of authority. We don't want anybody telling us what to do. I mean, really, we're free, right? July 4th, all of that stuff. Nobody has the right to tell us what to do. Well, I hate to pop your bubble. Jesus has the right to tell you what to do. If you want to complain about what Jesus says, that's fine. You can complain. But your complaint in no way affects the authority that Jesus has. So, that was the end of last week's lesson. Verse 23, and immediately. I commented about the fact that the word immediately is used 41 times in the book of Mark. It is a book of action. He is immediately doing this all the time. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. So, Jesus is in the synagogue. He is teaching. As I said last week, that's not that odd. The men of the community get together. If you're a traveling speaker, a traveling teacher, you would come in, they would hand you a scroll, and you would teach the people. So he has been teaching them for a while. And all of a sudden, someone interrupts the presentation. And that someone is someone who is possessed by a demon, an unclean spirit. Now, let's stop right there for just a few minutes because we have difficulty sometime in our you know, scientific, rational world handling the idea of demonic forces. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, and I usually just kind of give you a brief rendition of it, but I actually wrote it down. 
There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. That is from the preface of the Screwtape Letters. If you haven't read the Screwtape Letters, you ought to read them, and then you ought to read them again, and probably again. The Screwtape Letters were written by C.S. Lewis, and they are the instructions from one demon to another demon on how to tempt this particular individual. And they asked C.S. Lewis one time whether it was hard for him to write this, and he said, no, it was the easiest thing I ever wrote. Because we all understand the reality of evil. We understand that at the beginning, angels were created. Angels are spiritual beings. They do not have a physical body. Sometimes in the scripture, we see them in the form of human beings. They take on that form in order to present themselves to us so we would see them. We also understand in scripture that a group of these angels rebelled against God and they are, in fact, the demonic forces. They are spiritual beings working for the bad guy. Okay? As C.S. Lewis says, we run into two potential errors. One is to pretend that they don't exist. I mean, let's face it, right? It seems irrational to believe in a bad demonic force. Now, it's interesting. We're very eager to believe in angels, okay? In fact, 20 or 30 years ago, angels were all the rage. Angels were the rage because they just seemed so nice. You know, the little pudgy kid, maybe with the bow and arrow. Wait, that's Cupid. Angels seemed pleasant and nice. In fact, I would argue there was this time where people were more interested in angels than they were in God because God was kind of judgmental. Angels are here to help us. So we want to believe in angelic beings, guardian angels, angels helping us, entertaining angels, unaware, all of that stuff. But we're not real keen on believing in fallen angels. Throughout the book of Mark, we're going to see repeated encounters with demonic forces. Why? Why do we see them then and we don't see them today? Well, one of the reasons may be because we don't look for them today. Okay? We just don't. But I would also contend that given the fact that Jesus the Son of God had come to earth. This was the time in all of history where the spiritual forces are most at war. They are there to try to change the course of Jesus' ministry on earth. We saw it in last week's lesson where Satan shows up to tempt Jesus himself. So the fact that there was, was more demonic activity at this point in history 
that the gospel is talking about should not surprise us. So, Jesus is speaking in the synagogue, and this person, possessed of a demon, interrupts the service. Now, it doesn't really tell us, but my suspicion is that he was there the whole time. My suspicion is he might have been there for months. My suspicion is he could have been a part of the congregation. And he was getting along just fine until Jesus shows up. And all of a sudden, he recognizes the authority of the person sitting at the front of the room holding the scroll. More so than a lot of the people there. They recognized his authority of his teaching. They didn't necessarily recognize who he is. But the demons did. The demon knew exactly who he was. They weren't sure why he was there, but they knew it wasn't a good thing for the demons. So, let's read this again. And immediately, verse 23, there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Why are you here? What are you going to do to us? I believe he was scared to death. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. Let's just stop right there. We have a crowd of people listening to Jesus. We're going to have crowds of people listening to Jesus throughout his ministry. And we're going to get to the point where Jesus is going to ask his disciples, who do people say that I am? Well, you're this prophet or that prophet or you're this wise guy or that wise. You're somebody great. The demonic force has no question about who he is. I know who you are. Now, it's interesting why a demonic force would know this where we as human beings sometimes, oftentimes, question it. But as a pure spiritual being embedded in a human being, the pure spiritual being recognizes who Jesus is. I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. Now, I don't want to get inside the mind of a demon. I mean, that just seems like a fruitless activity. But what do you think this demon is feeling at this moment? I'm toast. I am in the presence of the guy. The guy that has the authority. Yes, all these people may think he has the authority of a teacher. I know the authority that I have, that he has. I know the authority that he had that spoke this world into existence. I know who he is. I don't know what he's up to, but I know who he is. 
But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. So he tells the demon, shut up and get out of this person. And guess what happens? He shuts up and he gets out of the person. That is interesting. We'll talk about this in just a moment because at the end of this chapter, he's going to cure a man of leprosy. He's going to cure the man of leprosy and he's going to tell the man, don't tell anybody other than the priest what's happened. And what happens? The man tells everybody. Now, I've got this philosophical discussion running through my head that I have never actually resolved but we have a demon being commanded to do something, and he does it. We have a human being commanded to do something, and he kind of does it. Sort of, maybe, I don't know. But the demon does exactly what Jesus commands him to do. And the crowd is sitting around going, what just happened? Once again, let's try to picture this situation. I believe this man was sitting in the congregation, doing just fine, demon-possessed. Now, other places we're going to see demons living, I mean, demon-possessed people living among the tombs. We're going to see that, okay? That's going to happen. But he's there, and all of a sudden he recognizes who Jesus is, and he starts blathering this stuff out, and the rest of the congregants are sitting there looking, going, what's happening here? I mean, let's face it. If one of you jumped up right now and started spouting stuff off, we'd all look at you like you were a little weird. But they heard what he said, and they heard what Jesus said, and all of a sudden, they acknowledge the fact that this person who was possessed of an unclean spirit is now no longer possessed. And once again, we return to the subject of authority. Yes, God has said he is the Son of God. Yes, the demon has confessed that he is the Son of God. And now the people are amazed because not only is his teaching authoritative, he commands demonic forces and they obey him. It's not put up a fight, you know, this big angelic war, you know, duking it out. It's not that at all. He simply commands him and he goes. Back to C.S. Lewis's quote. There's two problems. One is to pretend that they don't exist, and the other is to pretend that they have too much power. In many of our minds, we have this hierarchy. There's God, and there's the devil. 
and they are fighting each other. And they're both there at the same level with the same power, with the same strength, struggling in this cosmic battle for humanity. There's actually a religion that teaches this. It's called Zoroasterism. There's the good God, there's the bad God, and all of history is a struggle between those two. And that's what many of us believe about Satan and the demonic forces. It's false. Satan is a created being. If you wanted an equal being, as C.S. Lewis points out, it's not Satan and God, it's Satan and Michael the archangel. He is a created being. When the creator commands, the demonic force responds, as we're going to see. But back to the crowd. The crowd was astonished. The crowd was shocked. What just happened? Here was this guy who obviously was out of his mind, and now he's fine. And all that happened was Jesus said, go, and the demonic force went. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. You know how this grapevine works. Did you hear what just happened? Yeah, and then I walked to the next village. Did you hear what we just happened in our village? Yeah, I heard that. Yeah, and off to the next village. Pretty soon, the whole Galilean region is aware of this new teacher. This new teacher who has teaching authority, but he also has the ability to command demonic forces. And immediately, there's that word again, he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So they went to Peter's house, and his mother-in-law was sick, and Jesus said, I can handle that. He touches her, she gets up, and she starts doing her thing, as if nothing had happened. Now, once again, Mark is telling us the story. He's telling us the story, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. And sometimes, in the haste to work through this, we kind of go, what did I just miss? Jesus is demonstrating his authority. Let's keep going. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So, he heals the mother-in-law. No mother-in-law jokes here. He heals the mother-in-law, and word gets out, and by evening, everybody in the town that has anybody in their family that's sick starts bringing them to Jesus. 
And I get the impression, you know, he's sitting on the, at the front door going, ah, here's another one. Ah, there's another one. And he's healing them all. He's healing them and he is continuing to cast out demons. Why is Jesus doing this? Well, because he can. That's the first reason. We need to understand the purpose of Jesus' healings. It's a sign. It is him demonstrating his authority. We're going to see this in a couple of chapters when they bring um, you know, the lame guy to him. Remember the story? They let him down in the house, and he's there, and Jesus walks up to him, and the guy obviously is lame. And what does Jesus say to him? Your sins are forgiven. That's not why I'm here. That's not why I'm here. That's not why I've come. And all the religious officials go, who are you to forgive somebody's sins? And Jesus says, so that you will know that I have the authority to forgive sins, he turns to the guy and says, get up and walk. And off he goes. The healings are not the purpose of his ministry. The healings are the demonstration of his authority. The healings demonstrate that he is the Son of God. It is never meant to be his primary purpose. We're going to see that in the next couple of verses. But you also understand that Jesus is compassionate. Jesus is compassionate to the needs of the community. He, is, he acknowledges the fact that these people have these problems. He acknowledges it and using his authority, he deals with the problem. And, once again, he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. I just think that's fascinating, but we'll keep moving. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Let's just stop right there. So we've had a big night. I have no idea how many people showed up at the door. The verse tells us that everybody in the village showed up. They were either there because they had somebody that needed to be healed, or they were there because they wanted to watch the show. It was a cool show. I mean, these are people you know. These are people you know are sick. These are people that you live with. So this may have gone on for hours. Jesus has had a busy day. He starts out in the synagogue teaching, and he ends up healing everybody in the community. And what does Jesus do? He wakes up early and does what he always did, which is go and commune with God. Why did he do that? Because he knew, like we sometimes don't know, that everything that he did was connected to his relationship with God the Father. 
Elsewhere he says, I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. And he knows that something is about to happen, because we see it in the next verse, and he needs to step away from it. Because in the next verse, Peter and company are going to show up and they're going to go, this is cool, let's go back, the crowd wants you. And he's going to say, let's go. This isn't why I'm here. I've told you before, there's a Steve Martin movie that I do like called Leap of Faith. Steve Martin plays a faith healer. Okay, I like the movie because I like the black gospel music that the choir sings. It's fabulous. Okay, But the movie has a fascinating ending because... A kid, well, in fact, let me back up. Steve Martin is a con man, and he'll tell you he's a con man. I mean, he will. He says, I put on a good show. That was his quote. I put on a good show. But at the end of the movie, this kid is really healed. Really, honest to goodness, healed. And Steve Martin knows he didn't do it. Well, all of Steve Martin's crew is sitting there going, we can milk this, we can use this to get to this big city, to make all this money, to do all this stuff, to get all this power, to get all this influence. We can do it. And Steve Martin sneaks off and hitches a ride on a truck heading to nowhere. Okay? The disciples are the crew. The disciples are sitting there going, this guy's the Messiah. This guy is our ticket to the big time. This guy is the guy that is going to run the Romans out of our country. And when this guy does it, guess who gets to be number two? Me. And what does Jesus do? He goes out to a desolate place. He goes out where nobody else is, where all the distractions are gone. He goes to the desolate place and he talks with God. There are thousands of voices in this world telling you and I what we ought to do. And Jesus goes to the desolate place because there's only one voice that he wants to hear. And that is the voice of the Father. I was thinking about that this week. There are what are known as the three S's of spiritual development. And I was thinking about this because I don't have any of them. Silence. I've had a house full of grandkids this week. (laughs) Solitude and simplicity. Jesus was not going to listen to those other voices. Jesus went to the desolate place to listen to the only voice that mattered. So, let's pick up the narrative. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. Of course everyone is looking for you. You just worked miracles. 
they're finding more sick people. They're going to the neighboring communities to get sick people. They are looking for you because they want another miracle. This is our opportunity. We do well in Galilee and we work our way up to Jerusalem. And by the time we get to Jerusalem, we will have an army that the Romans cannot stop. And if we have a battle and people get wounded, guess what? You heal them all. Perfect. This is our opportunity. And he said to them, let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. The crowd is over there. Yay, yay. And Jesus says, I have come to preach the gospel. Do you remember what it was that he talked about here at the beginning? Verse 15, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That's what he was telling them. The time is at hand. The Messiah is coming, but it isn't the Messiah that you have in mind. That's what he needs to go to the next community and preach, and the next community, and the next community. And that's why he's here. And he went through all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So this is, you know, the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. That's the area that he's working in. Verse 40, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Now, picture the story. Um... You and I don't run into people with leprosy very much anymore. Like, not at all. Okay? But this is nasty stuff. It's nasty stuff because of what it does to your body, but it's also nasty stuff because what it does to your relationships. Like, it breaks every one of them. Go back to the Old Testament law. And there are pages of instructions about what to do if somebody has leprosy. And I can cut to the end of all these instructions, and that is, if they indeed have leprosy, you kick them out of the community. The community could not, would not be defiled by this very infectious disease. Now, before you get there, there was all of this, okay, somebody has break out on their skin, you separate them for a week to see what happens, they come back to the priest, if it's still there, then you kick them out again, if you do this, and if it, I mean, there's a process that it goes through. But at the end result, they've been kicked out of town. They're living up in the hills, away from civilization. You've seen Ben-Hur, right? The leprosy colony at the end of that. So this leper, this person with leprosy, comes to Jesus. Rule number one, he just broke the don't congregate with other people. I mean, we're talking social distancing on steroids here, okay? Forget the mask, just stay a long way away, like shouting distance. And he comes to Jesus and he says... 
if you will, if you want to, you can heal me. That's an interesting phrase. If you will, you can do it. It's interesting because it potentially raises all kinds of bad situations. I hate to, I mean, I would just as soon not bring this up, but I'll go ahead and do it because you're asking the same question. Today, when you have a loved one that is ill, we implore Jesus, we implore God, heal them. And guess what? Sometimes they're healed. And sometimes they're not. Because we acknowledge the fact that God is sovereign over these situations. God is sovereign and He is using these situations to accomplish some purpose that we may know nothing about. This man comes to Jesus and demands nothing from him. Jesus, you are the Son of God. You have to prove it to me. You have to demonstrate. You have to heal me. He doesn't do that. He makes no presumption that God, that Jesus, has to heal him. Instead, all he says, if you will, if it is in accordance with your purpose, I acknowledge the fact that you can do it. And we see this throughout Scripture, and we see this in our daily lives, where sometimes the prayer is answered the way we want it to, and sometimes it is not answered the way we want it to, and do we acknowledge that God is sovereign and he has the right to do that? And that bothers us. It bothers us when it's the loved one that is suffering from some disease. I've always liked, and I've mentioned it to you many times, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are about to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Remember in the Old Testament for not bowing down to the king's statue? What they say is, our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, remember, we are not bowing down to you. And guess what? God miraculously saves them. But you get into the New Testament and you have Stephen, the first Christian martyr, why didn't God save him? Because God had a purpose. Now, did Stephen suffer irreparable harm because of this? No, he got to go to heaven. Okay, let's just say that's the okay thing. So it is interesting that this leper comes to Jesus and he says, if you will, if you choose what is the basis of Jesus choosing? Well, we know, because I just mentioned it to you, that he acknowledges that all everything that he does 
is done in accordance with the will of the Father. So, let's go on. Moved with pity. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will, I will choose, be clean. And immediately, there's that word again, but in this context, I really like that word. Immediately, the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Remember in the Old Testament, we were just talking about it, these pages of instructions about what to do if somebody has leprosy? Well, there actually is in those instructions, instructions about what to do if somebody has cure, been cured of leprosy. Once again, the priest is the one that pronounced them unclean and made them leave the community. So they have to go back to the priest to get permission to re-enter the community. Now, I've always thought this was funny. I was telling somebody yesterday. I've always thought this was funny. In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, there's instructions on what to do if somebody is cured of leprosy. How many people do you think were cured of leprosy? Not just some skin disease and it went, went away after a week, but how many people do you think were really cured of leprosy? I don't know how they would be, ever. From what I've read, leprosy just keeps getting worse. So why are there instructions about what to do when somebody is cured of leprosy? Because the guy that wrote that, God, knew that thousands of years later he was going to send his son and his son was going to show up and cure people of leprosy. And guess what? Go tell the priest. Now, you're the priest. I'm kind of ad-libbing the story here. You're the priest. You've been trained to be a priest. You've studied the book of Leviticus. You've studied all those laws. You've fallen asleep studying the book of Leviticus. You've probably, not probably, you have memorized the book of Leviticus. You know all this stuff. And all of a sudden, somebody shows up who's been cured of leprosy. It isn't, well, yeah, you may look kind of, yeah, you... No, immediately he was cured of leprosy. So you're the priest, and you're sitting there, and this guy comes to you, and he says, hi, Bob, you remember me? Yeah, I remember you. I mean, this is a small community. I remember you, but wait, didn't you have leprosy? Yeah, I'm cured, and you're supposed to pronounce me cured. And he goes, wait, I am supposed to do that. Somewhere in that book of Leviticus, there's instructions on how I'm supposed to do this. I'd better look up those instructions, because he's never used them in his life. 
His father had never used him. His father had never used him. His father. And what is your first question going to be? How did it happen? This guy, by the name of Jesus, spoke and it happened. Done. Clean. Immediately. And you're the priest, and you're going, what just came into town? Because you are the priest, and you know you've never cured anybody of leprosy. You wouldn't even try. You know, scrub real hard with soap, and maybe it'll go away. No. All of a sudden, you're the priest, and you know that God is moving in the community. Now, you may have a hard heart, because we're going to see those and reject the whole thing, but you can't deny the fact that this guy had leprosy because I kicked him out of town, and now he's coming back, and I've got instructions on what to do when he comes back. See that you say nothing to anyone. Why does he tell people to not tell anybody? I mean, if you're starting a mass movement, you want everybody to tell everybody what you've done. If it is your goal to lead this army into Jerusalem, you need soldiers. You need masses. You need mobs. You need crowds. Hey, I just healed you of leprosy. Go tell your hundred closest friends what I did. But rather, he tells them, don't tell anybody. If you look at a map of this area at the time, there's the Sea of Galilee, there's the Dead Sea, there's the Jordan River that connects the two. As a general rule, this is not true in every case, but as a general rule, if Jesus is on the left side of that line, the Jordan River, Sea of Galilee, the Dead Sea, if he's on the west side of that line, he tells people, don't tell anybody. But if he's on the east side of that line, he says, yeah, go tell everybody you want. Why? Jesus knows that at some point he's going to come in conflict with the Jerusalem authorities. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, these are the people who eventually are going to get him arrested and sent to the cross. He knows that's going to happen, but he knows the time is not yet. So in one sense, to use a modern term, he's laying low. As long as he's up in Galilee, the Jerusalem authorities, eh, they know what's going on, but it's no big deal, as long as you keep it up in Galilee. So as a general rule, when he's in the pagan side of the world, that is, the east side of the Jordan River, he doesn't worry about it too much. 
But at least for a while, we're going to see in his ministry that he's going to tell people, don't tell people. Because he knows that the time is not ready yet. Now, there's going to come a time where the scripture says he turns his eyes toward Jerusalem. And at that point, he's ready for the fight. The conflict is coming. It's going to end in the crucifixion. No, it's going to end in the resurrection. And he knows that's coming, but not yet. So as a general rule, and once again, there are exceptions, but as a general rule, he tells people to not tell people. And that's what he said. Don't tell anybody except the priest that the law says you have to go tell. So off he goes. And, verse 39, no, no, here we are, verse 45. But he went out, this is the man, and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Now, this is the thing that I said, you know, fumbled around in my head, was the guy sinning by doing what Jesus told him not to do. You know, technically that's kind of the definition of sin. Okay? But let's face it. What would you do? I don't know how long this guy's been a leper. Probably a lot of his life. He has been kicked out of the community. He has been separated. He has been suffering in pain and agony. His skin was rotting off. It was bad news. And all of a sudden, it's all perfect. Tell me, who would you tell? You would have it on Facebook within the hour. <laughs> you would. And I don't even post things on Facebook. I would figure out how to do it. Why? Yes, go ahead. Well, it's interesting to me that the, the first thing that he puts the demons out, and I think, why are you afraid? Uh -huh. It's going to expose people. Yeah. So they knew. They knew his, that these miracles were happening. The whole village, once again, came. They were watching it. And so, I mean, it's spreading anyway. It is spreading up in the north. You can't hide it, okay? I mean, let's face it. When Jesus is doing the stuff that he's doing, you can't hide it. But yeah, visually, it's difficult to hide. Okay, weren't you like different yesterday? Yeah. How did it happen? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> no. I'm going to cut the guy a little slack. Okay. That's my bottom line. If it's sin, that's between him and God. I'm going to cut him some slack. I want to tell everybody what Jesus has just done for me. Now, there will come a time where Jesus tells his disciples, shout it from the rooftops. Now, here's the question, though. Why, when we have been commanded to share what Jesus has done, do we hide it under the proverbial bushel while this man, who was told not to tell anybody, goes out and does, well, 
he tells people anyway. Why? Because he knew what he had been, and he knew what he was, and he knew how he got from what he was to what he is. And that thing that got him from A to B is Jesus. Our problem is sometimes we don't know what we were. You know, I was a good guy, and Jesus is my best friend, and it's just him and me, and we'll be real secretive about it. We don't realize that the leprosy, which is an outward demonstration of decay, is a picture of sin in our own life and the moral decay that it brings to our soul, and we don't acknowledge what God has done through the person of Jesus Christ to bring us to wholeness. I just think it's interesting. There's lots of things in this passage that I just think are interesting. The demons obey him. The human beings, meh, sort of. The demons recognize his authority. The human beings, eh, sometimes. They actually did. I mean, most of them, some of them recognized his authority. So if I have one question to leave with us, it's back to the subject of authority. Do I acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And if I do acknowledge that he is of the, the Son of God, do I acknowledge the fact that he has not just the right to make suggestions to us, but the authority to command us? And if we don't acknowledge at least that much Dare I say, we're not any better than the demons. Even the demons know who he is. But we, as other created beings, want to argue about it. And even if we believe he's a wonderful guy, he's just another guy with nice pithy saying. What Mark is driving us relentlessly to, immediately to, is the idea that we have to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. And that's what we need to continue to remind ourselves of. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for healing this leper, and thank you for healing us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.